Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 7. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Well, welcome, leaders. I am Jesse Leahy, and today I'm delighted to have on the show Helio Fred Garcia who is the author of three books on communication, the most recent being The Power of Communication, Skills to Build Trust, Inspire Loyalty, and Lead Effectively. For more than 30 years, Fred has been a coach, counselor, teacher, writer, and speaker whose clients include some of the largest and best-known companies and organizations in the world. Fred is the president of the crisis management firm Logos Consulting Group and executive director of the Logos Institute for Crisis Management and Executive Leadership. He has been on the New York University faculty since 1988, where he teaches in both the MBA program and the Master's in Corporate Communications program. Fred, welcome to the Engaging Leader podcast. Thank you, Jesse, and hello, leaders. So, in other words, you help both communication professionals as well as business people who are not communication professionals become really good at at strategic communication. Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a really fun opportunity to put a foot in each of the camps. I spend a significant amount of my time working with CEOs and other leaders on helping them be better communicators. I also spend a lot of time working with communicators and helping them be better leaders and counselors. And, and what I find is the conceptual frameworks work in both camps, but, but they have to be come at from slightly different directions. Uh, The challenge with leaders is most leaders think they know how to communicate because it's not something they had to go to school for. They've been doing it since they were just a a year old. They started talking when they were four or five, they started reading and writing, but they've done it their whole lives so they think they're good at it. In, in, In many instances I found they're not as good at it as they think or at least not as systematically good at it as they could be. Most communicators, on the other hand, find a comfort zone and find it hard to break out of communication speak and in the process self-marginalize. So a a big part of what I do with my communication students and with my communication clients is help them build the confidence and business aptitudes uh, in order to engage leaders on terms leaders can respect and appreciate. Well, I should I should mention that I, I first discovered your your work from an article you published in Fast Company magazine, which I loved, and ran right out and, and got the book. And uh, th- there are two things I love about the book. First, it's full of uh, juicy stories, so it's it's not your typical boring book about how to communicate. And second, it's it's just a great primer on leadership communication. It, it covers principles and strategy and skills. And the, one of the, the core premises is that communication is, is an, an absolutely indispensable leadership discipline. And I wonder, it seems like there's, there's so few leaders that invest time in building their communication competencies. I think for the reason you just mentioned that it's, it's almost deceptive, deceptively simple. They've been doing it forever. But do you, do you have a hard time persuading leaders to, to uh, give it more attention? 
you, you made reference to, to my work affiliation, and that is uh, I run a consulting firm and think tank that deals with leadership in crisis. And what typically happens is the crisis is an opportunity for the leader to recognize that he or she actually isn't as good at something as he or she thought. So, so very often, I have the good fortune of dealing with leaders when they are actually feeling a little vulnerable hmm. and, and where they know they need some help. Where, where the interesting play takes, takes place is after the crisis, where the leader says, you know, that was really helpful. Now I'd like to build my own team's capacity so that we don't have to go through that again. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, for, for the immediate aftermath of the crisis trauma, people are, are motivated and committed. The challenge then becomes people say, eh, you know, that's really not all that critical. I have to get to this budget meeting or I have to, to get to this staff meeting or we have to put, uh, you know, this product out. And they then push getting good at communicating well to a secondary priority. But, but most of the time when I'm dealing with leaders, it's either in the immediate uh, uh, moment when they recognize they're vulnerable or in the aftermath of having been vulnerable where they never want to go through that again. What, what are the risks for a leader of not being a, a master at communication? Well, well here's, here's the biggest challenge. Audiences look to leaders to connect with them. There is an expectation among audiences in the current environment. I think we've always had it, but social media just makes it more prevalent. There's an expectation in the environment that leaders are good at engaging stakeholders, whether the stakeholders are customers or investors or employees or what have you. And when we look at celebrated failures of leadership communication, just in the last couple of years, there are moments where the leaders fail to engage stakeholders on their own terms. So one of the principles in the book is principle number two, that if we are to move people we need to meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. And that means leaders need to understand what audiences care about. And as I say in the book, audiences don't think the way leaders think. They don't care about the things leaders care about. They don't worry about the things leaders worry about. They care about what's in it for them. So let's look at, for example, Netflix. Mm-hmm. You know, for all know, Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of, of, of Netflix, whom I've never met, uh, is a very good businessman, and he invented a really good company, and I'm still a, cl- a customer of Netflix, and I'm a happy customer of Netflix. But in July of 2011, Netflix sent an email to their 25 million customers about a relatively routine change in service and a relatively benign change in price. And Netflix's business model at the time said that you could get video in one of two ways. You could get it by DVD one at a time, and you could get it streaming video whenever you wanted it, and they sold it as a bundle. And so people were, were used to sometimes watching streaming and sometimes getting a DVD, and there were advantages and disadvantages. You had to be connected to the internet to get the streaming. You could be on an airplane to, to do the DVD, but people were used to getting both. And then one day they got an email saying, from now on, you're going to have to choose one or the other. We're not going to bundle these anymore. You get to choose. And if you choose to get both, you're going to pay more. And they didn't say how much more, but it was 60% more than they were currently paying. (laughs) But what was really intriguing to me in the email, and I got it as a customer, but then every one of my clients and students started emailing me about it. What was really intriguing with the email is 
it was all phrased in terms of the company's internal operations and nothing in terms of why this is important for the customer. Not even uh, we apologize for the inconvenience this might cause and no acknowledgement that the price increase was 60%. It simply said, if you want both, you'll pay this. But, but nothing that suggested that there was any appreciation of the effect of this on the customer. As a result, customers responded badly. Now, the very last line said, and of course, as always, you can always cancel your service by clicking here. <laughs> Great way to end and the note. <laughs> and it was, it was a toneless, heartless, operational email of the sort you might read inside the, the body of essentially a distribution and logistics company. Mm-hmm. And it was all about distribution and logistics. It wasn't about customer experience. Now, they could have talked about their commitment to continue to expand the offerings to create the best selection, to, to have the fastest download speeds. They could have done any number of things to talk about the customer. They could also have expressed uh, genuine regret for the inconvenience that it was causing. They did none of that. Well, there was a backlash. The stock on the day that they announced this was at $300 per share. And they had about 25 million customers. Over the weeks, this became a news item. And lots and lots of people expressed lots and lots of concern. And analysts expressed concern. The stock fell about a third over a six-week period. And almost a million customers abandoned the company. And then Reed Hastings sent a note. to The CEO sent a note uh, to his customers again. And it began, I messed up and I owe you an apology. And I'm sorry. And that was a good thing to say. And he said, I unintentionally insulted you, and I shouldn't have. And then he explained how it happened. And it was all fine as far as it went. But then he said, oh, and we have some further news. Uh, we're going to continue with a split service. You can't bundle. And now we're going to change the name of one of them. And that means we're going to have to change the website. And that means if you want both, you're going to have to create a whole new account. And therefore, you're going to need to have a second credit card transaction. You're going to have to maintain a separate wish list. And it just got more and more inconvenient, but there was no apology for that inconvenience. And, and people read that and said, what's wrong with this guy? And more people abandoned the company. Uh, more investors sold their shares. More customers uh, discontinued their service. There was visceral anger on Facebook and on the company's blog and on Twitter. And in a three-month period, the stock fell 75%. And they lost over a million customers. Now, that was completely self-inflicted harm, completely unnecessary, and simply because here's a guy who was otherwise a really good businessman, a really good entrepreneur, a really visionary uh, inventor of a whole new kind of service, but he was so tone deaf on stakeholder engagement that he cost his company meaningful harm. And on the one-year anniversary, uh, the stock was still down 75%. I just went out and looked recently, and it, yeah, it's still only uh, what a third of what it of what it was a year a little over a year ago. Third of what it was before they sent out that email. Now, now Netflix is one of the more visible because so many people uh, have Netflix or had Netflix, and so many people saw the press coverage. But it's hardly unique. What we find is the skills that get leaders to the top of their organizations or industries are not sufficient to keep them in good public support when things get a little dicey. And, and whether it's a, an otherwise very effective engineer like Tony Hayward at BP, who said a series of things that cost confidence in him and in BP to plummet to the point that he ultimately was fired from BP as CEO 
uh, three months after the, the Deepwater Horizon explosion, not because of the explosion, but because his continued miscommunication caused really important stakeholders to lose confidence in him. And, and you look across the spectrum of leadership, you see people who are otherwise very good at what they do, who just don't appreciate how to engage audiences effectively. So one of the principles in my book, principle number seven, is it's critically important for leaders to take seriously the need to be good at communicating well. And that means they have to make it part of their own personal professional development plan. They need to invest in their own continuing communication skills, and they need to find opportunities to stretch their skills during good times so that they can hold them in good stead during bad times. It's interesting, the Netflix story seems to be not only demonstrating what good or bad communication can lead to, but how the, the, the strategies and principles of communication can also translate into business. He, he was demonstrating that he was not thinking empathetically, and that, that revealed itself in the communication but it also revealed itself in the, the operational decisions that he was communicating. And then the feedback he got from the communication did help them to re readjust their, their operational strategy. They ultimately abandoned the, the desire to, to split the company in two when they saw that customers wouldn't, wouldn't go for it. So I give them credit for their adaptation. Uh, what, what is really sad is they could easily have projected that reaction simply by sampling their client base, uh, but they, they seem not to do that. Uh, but you put, your finger, you put your finger on a really important principle, and that's the first principle in the book. And the way I put it is leaders need to see communication as the continuation of business by other means. It is no less important than any other business discipline. It's no less important than accounting. It's no less important than management and operations. It's no less important than human resources or law. And they need to take it as seriously. That means they need to be intentional about it. Now, the only reason to engage an audience is to change something about that audience. And so an effective leader always asks, what's the change I want to see in the audience? And what do I need to do? And what do I need to say? And what does my audience need to see and what does my audience need to hear and from whom do they need to see it and hear it in order for them to change the way I need them to change? And whether it's the Netflix example where you want the audience to remain loyal and embrace a new service offering at a different price point and feel good about it, which happens all the time, uh, or something that's already a, a crisis like the oil rig explosion in the Gulf, if you think about what is the reaction we want to foster in the audience, what's the change we want to provoke, we can often get to a much different communication approach than if we begin by asking, what do we want to say? And the way I put it in the book is, if the starting point is, what do we want to say, then we're unlikely to communicate well because what do we want to say is self-indulgent, self-directed, and frankly selfish, as opposed to what do we have? What do we want? What do we need the audience to think and feel? And what do they care about? And how do we engage the audience on terms that matter to them so that they're more likely to support us? Again, we can't move them if we don't meet them where they are. We need to first meet them where they are and then move them with us. And effective leaders understand that. Ineffective leaders think it's all about telling our story or pushing our message 
and that frankly doesn't work. That's interesting. So just like in, in other uh, in other means of business, you you need to begin with the end in mind, start with an outcome, and then have a strategic plan to get you there. It's the same thing in communication. You you start with an outcome, which is generally a change that you're trying to bring about, and then you plan backwards. And that brings up uh, uh, principle number six in your book, planning ahead and, and aligning tactics with strategy. Yeah. And, and you, the way I describe strategy is strategy is a process of ordered thinking. It's a process of thinking in a particular order. And in particular, when you're dealing with a high-stakes situation, the sequence of questions is never, what do we say? The sequence of questions is, what do we have? What does it mean? Who matters? What do we want? What's the most effective way to get that? And then what do we have to do and what do we have to say and to whom and how in order to make that happen? Now, that's not a very difficult concept to grasp. Let's, let's talk about what takes up a, a very long part of the book. And, and that is what I consider to be among the single worst handled crises I've ever seen in my career. And that was the series of missteps over the course of more than a year at uh, HP, formerly known as Hewlett-Packard. What we saw there was a really popular CEO, Mark Hurd, who for five years had seemed to be the hero who had turned around a struggling and troubled company and was highly respected by the investment community as well as by business partners and, and others. In August of 2010, Mark Hurd resigned, apparently, from uh, HP, and, and HP put out an announcement, and it was an ambiguous announcement. And it said, the company today announced that CEO Mark Hurd resigned after an internal investigation led by the general counsel concluded that he had not committed sexual harassment. And people looked at that announcement and said, huh? You know, who, who resigns when an investigation clears them of something? Right. There was a cryptic reference in the press release that Mr. Hurd saying that he had failed to live up to HP's standard of conduct, but it didn't say how. And that first announcement, which came out on a Friday afternoon, which is, of course, a suspicious time to announce that kind of news, that announcement got a lot of people wondering, well, it was the first of a series of blunders and missteps over the course of a year where the board failed to secure a non-compete agreement for Mr. Hurd. A month later, he was working as co-president at Oracle, a, a, both a competitor and business partner of HP. HP sued, and investors said, that's silly, too. Then the board, which was uh, beleaguered, had a, a really hard time coming together to agree on a new CEO. They finally named a new CEO, even though only a quarter of the board had ever met the CEO. That CEO was not accepted well by the street, and there was misstep after misstep after misstep. In the course of a year, the company's stock had fallen 50%. Uh, they had gone through three CEOs, uh, their competitive position had lagged, and in every one of the instances where they had a, a major announcement to make, they simply spoke tactically about that announcement. They hadn't actually thought through a series of steps. The way I describe it in the book is it's almost as if they were playing the arcade game of whack-a-mole, where something pops up and you smack it, and then something else pops up and you smack it, and then something else pops up and you smack it. But nobody was getting altitude. Nobody was saying, hold on, we need to look forward. And the way I describe it in the book is planning is not about putting things on a calendar. Planning is about a chessboard. 
and we have to think several moves ahead. If we say X, what will those who matter to us think and feel and say back? What will we need to say back? And we can project at least three steps out what the reaction is going to be if we say X or if we say Y or if we say Z. And effective leaders, especially when they're communicating high stakes news, whether it's good news or bad, project their stakeholders' reactions out several steps and then ask, is that the outcome we want or does that actually get us some unintended consequence that we'd rather not live with? So, so what I do in the book is talk about how important it is to understand the situation and project stakeholder reactions and expectations into the future. And I provide, as, as you've already noted, some, some tools, some checklists and, and other things beyond the conceptual framework on how to do it well. But the key is to recognize that if we simply deal with the thing in front of us, we're fixing a symptom and not the cause. And we need to worry about the cause as well as the symptom. In the case of HP, they frankly had a governance structure that didn't work very well. And in fact, a former BP, I'm sorry, a former HP, uh, in the case of HP, they had a governance structure that didn't work very well. And a former HP board member uh, who had left the board some years earlier looked back at, at what was happening in the whole post-Mark Hurd problem and said, this, this has to be the single worst board in the history of business. And that's simply because the failures were failures of governance and leadership and not merely failures of communication. But communication became essentially the symptom of the problems they had in governance. Ultimately, the board had a wholesale changeover. They ultimately brought in Meg Whitman as the new CEO, but three CEOs after Mark Hurd. It was Hurd, an interim, and then uh, uh, Mr. Apotheker, who had come over from Germany briefly, and then Meg Whitman, who is apparently writing this very unsteady vessel that is HP. Well, you, you use that very effective metaphor of whack-a-mole, and you can certainly appreciate how it, it definitely felt like whack-a-mole for uh, customers, and I'm sure investors as well. I, I was a, a longtime HP customer. My primary work tool was an HP laptop, and then I also had a, a Palm smartphone, which uh, HP acquired during exactly during the story that you shared in the book. And I was, as a customer, aware of the, these, the sort of whack-a-mole communications that were coming out. And, and I thought, in fact, I said to people, boy, I, 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 will, I wonder how long all this distract, this, these problems will be distracting them and if I will stay an HP customer. And after, I think, a year and a half went by, I, I, I realized this is not changing anytime soon. And as soon as I was able to migrate to other products, I did. Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear of that experience, but I'm not at all surprised by it. And, and, and what you're pointing to is, is a really interesting phenomenon about the power of communication and leadership. What, what you're describing is you are not an employee of HP and you are not an investor of HP. And the communication that you witnessed was directed to all stakeholders, but, but it was really driven by investor communications and employee communications. And to the degree there was customer communication, it was about product and services, but you watched the entirety of the HP experience and you reached a conclusion uh, based on what you described as it wasn't changing and therefore 
it was less painful for you to swap over. You stopped being as brand loyal. Leaders need to hear your testimony because they tend to compartmentalize. And audiences tend not to compartmentalize. You know, leaders tend to think, oh, that's an investor problem, or that's a product problem, or that's an employee problem. But stakeholders actually see companies and organizations far more organically than that. Whether it's a not-for-profit or a corporation, uh, leaders like to compartmentalize because it makes them feel less vulnerable. But stakeholders typically don't compartmentalize. Well, that shows the importance when you are in the strategy process, the planning process of thinking who, who, uh, what, who are all the groups that might have a stake in this issue? Because it's so easy for leaders who are compartmentalized just to quickly commu- try to create a communication for a single uh, stakeholder group. And so, so we actually in the checklist have the, the who are the affected stakeholders and what do we need to know about them that we don't already know. And that's part of the discipline of, of what you ask yourself as you're going through the planning process. There's, there's one other thing that, that I say in the planning chapter that is worth just teasing out, and you hinted at it, and that is very often the need to communicate surfaces an underlying business problem, and one of the virtues of planning is by going through that rigorous process of situational assessment and audience assessment and goal formation and thinking ahead three or four steps you begin to realize that the things that you're saying point to a business problem that will need to be resolved. And in, in the case of HP, you know, they were communicating about investigations that were frankly not very uh, well organized or communicated, at least as far as we can tell. They were pointing to management processes that were weak. They were pointing to management decision-making that had been done suboptimally. And the very process of having to explain should have given them a warning that there's an underlying business challenge that we need to be addressing. So one of, one of the ways I, I always put it is every crisis is a business problem before it's a communication problem. And you can't communicate your way out of a business problem. But one of the advantages of communication planning is it helps you identify where the business problem hasn't been sufficiently addressed. So there's virtue in planning even if you decide not to communicate because you have to actually have to go back and fix the underlying business problem. That's interesting that yeah, the communication planning process can really help be an integral part of the, just the regular business planning process. Well, one, more, one other communication uh, principle that I'd like to discuss before, before we run out of time, you bring it up as number eight, harnessing the power of language and of framing. I think that the topic of framing is, is fascinating. And uh, could, could you first of all explain what you mean by that term? Sure. Framing became all the rage in, in communication theory in 2004 during the, the presidential campaign just, just eight years ago when a cognitive linguist at Berkeley, who is very well known in academic circles but not known beyond academia, tried to, to uh, get Senator John Kerry to stop committing self-inflicted harm. And, and what was happening is every time Senator Kerry would speak about President Bush's policies 
he would inadvertently send his voters to vote for President Bush. And, and uh, George Lakoff, the linguist at Berkeley, who was a progressive, uh, thought that was not a good outcome, and he wanted to get the senator to stop misframing. And so when he couldn't get a meeting, he wrote a slim book that was very, very effective. The book was called Don't Think of an Elephant, and, and elephant there didn't mean uh, the, the emblem of the Republican Party. It actually had to do with an experiment that Professor Lakoff does with his students. I, I've been doing a similar experiment for 20 years with my students. I don't use the elephant, but I use something else. I tell my students, whatever you do, don't think of a giant purple octopus with big red tentacles. <laughs> and then I ask, hey, who succeeded in not thinking of the giant purple octopus with big red tentacles? And not a hand goes up because as soon as you tell somebody to not think of that, that's immediately what they go to. And framing is the process of triggering a mental image that establishes a worldview that determines the meaning of everything that follows. And, and the most famous example of that, at least in, in my lifetime, is the only sentence most people remember that President Richard Nixon spoke. And that was during a press conference when he said, I am not a crook. And so, of course, everybody remembers President Nixon as the crook. And the process of triggering that deep meaning is what framing is all about. Now, what I find, I have a lot of clients that are big banks and big insurance companies and big investment firms and big pharmaceutical companies and life science companies and manufacturing companies filled with highly quantitatively trained people. And they tend to assume that facts and data are persuasive. But what all the work around framing tells us is that facts only make sense within a frame of reference. And framing is the process of establishing the frame of reference first to drive meaning. So in the book, I give an example of a Stanford University study that looked at a population, I think it was Stanford undergraduates, uh, and split this group of people into two groups. And it described the same facts to the two groups, but using a different frame. And they, they invented a city that they called Addison, and they talked about a crime problem. And to one half of the group, they described crime as a wild beast preying on the city. And to the other group, they described crime as a virus infecting the city. And the facts and data were the same. So crime is a wild beast infecting the city of Addison. The crime rate in this once peaceful city has steadily increased over the last three years. In fact, these days it seems that crime is lurking in every neighborhood. And then they gave the facts. There were this many violent crimes, there were this many total crimes, this many murders. To the other group, they said crime is a virus infecting the city of Addison. The crime rate in this once peaceful city has steadily increased over the last three years. In fact, these days it seems that crime is infecting every neighborhood. And then they gave exactly the same statistics. This many crimes, this many violent crimes, this many murders. And then they asked, in your opinion, what should Addison do to reduce crime? And when crime was described as a wild beast, all of the solutions were law enforcement solutions. People proposed, oh, well, catch the criminals, put them in jail, build more prisons, tougher laws, mandatory minimums. But when they asked, what about the virus? What should we do about crime when crime is a virus? There, the responses were, we need to understand first causes. We need to eliminate the social dislocations. That means we've got to reduce poverty. That means we have to invest in education. That means we have to build schools. So what we saw is two dramatically different outcomes off the same fact base, based completely on the different frame of reference that was used to introduce the facts. What was most intriguing to me, and that's one reason I, I actually highlighted this in the book, is when they asked the, the participants why, why did you who had crime described as a wild beast propose law enforcement solutions? Why did you who had crime described as a virus propose 
social reform solutions, in both cases they said, oh, because of the crime statistics. So what that tells us is that human beings make judgments based on the frame of reference, but they justify their choices by reference to facts. And that's really interesting. So what I advise my, my quantitatively trained clients, whether they're doctors or PhDs or engineers or lawyers or, or otherwise quantitatively trained, I say, let's not fetishize facts. We need to be honest and, and we need to acknowledge facts and use facts honestly, but we need to recognize that human beings make judgments based on the frame of reference. And if you want people to understand something, you need to provide them with a frame of reference first in order for them to understand what it means second. And, and if we lead with frames, people will understand more likely what we need them to understand if we lead with facts, we're leaving it to them to provide the frame, and it may not be a frame that actually works for us. What would you say is the difference between framing and spin doctoring? Well, spin doctoring, at, at least as I teach it in my ethics courses, is spin doctoring is indifferent about the truthfulness of what they're talking about. So, so there's nothing at all illegitimate or inappropriate about using framing to cast a true impression. The, the ethical challenge becomes when you're doing it in an attempt to mislead. And it, when I say the facts are not persuasive, I don't suggest that you, need, that you ought to say things that are not factually true. What I'm suggesting is the same set of facts can lead to two dramatically different conclusions. And the ethical communicator and leader uses framing and then the facts that fit within that frame to persuade in ways that are truthful. And the, the, at least the pejorative understanding of spin, and it's usually used as a pejorative, is the suggestion that the people speaking are indifferent to the truthfulness of it. Not that they're trying necessarily to mislead, but that they are indifferent to truth. And the way I always differentiate between effective communication that is ethical and unethical communication, what we might call propaganda, is not that it seeks to tell falsehood, but that it is indifferent about the truthfulness of the claim that they're making. That makes, that makes sense. Well, Helio Fred Garcia, author of The Power of Communication, I would say for any leader who wants to be a habitually strategic communicator, I think you'll find this book not only very helpful, but also very enjoyable. Fred, how can people find out more about you and, or contact you? Uh, there's a website for the book that also has a link to me. So if you want to send me an email, you can do it through the website. You can also read the reviews. You can read some excerpts, including the Fast Company article that you kindly pointed out uh, as we were beginning our interview. The website is thepowerofcommunication.net. And, and for those who prefer to read electronically, it's available on iTunes as well as Nook and Kindle. And for those who prefer hard copy, it's available through your favorite bookstore or through a, your favorite online bookseller. Fred, thanks so much for joining us today. Jesse, thank you. And leaders, thank you very much. Well, out of the nine fundamental leadership communication principles that Fred talks about in his book, we talked about five of those today. And let me just summarize those for you as we close, leaders. Uh, first of all, see communication as the continuation of business by other means. To move people, meet them where they are. Plan ahead and align tactics with strategy. Invest in continuous improvement in communication skills. And harness the power of language and of framing. 
Well, that wraps up this episode of the Engaging Leader podcast. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll discuss how to become an interactive leader. If you like our show, please rate us on iTunes. That makes a huge difference in helping more people discover it. Go to engagingleader.com slash iTunes and click on write a review. We would love to know your thoughts about this episode. You can leave comments on our show notes at engagingleader.com or connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where, where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers on internal communication strategies. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Arthur Hankey, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.